democracy is under greater threat than at any time since uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union. There is more journalists being locked up. There are more actions against anybody who criticizes governments, which allows the leaders of those governments to steal with impunity. It's Aspen Ideas to go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Frank Vogel co-founded Transparency International. It's a global coalition that fights corruption around the world. He says leaders of governments are stealing public funds, and the problem isn't being taken seriously enough. Aspen Ideas to Go is a weekly show that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Recently, corruption cases have come to light in Russia, Brazil, and South Korea. In South Korea, the president was impeached over corruption and bribery charges. Corrupt governments, or kleptocracies, are dangerous. Meryl Chertoff directs the Aspen Institute's Justice and Society program. She says kleptocracy enables drug dealing and human trafficking. She references a recent Hudson Institute report. The authors argue that globalization has created a golden age of money laundering. The flow of illicit funds undermines U.S. foreign policy, <coughs> cripples development, damages Western soft power, and contributes to state collapse. Chertoff is the moderator of today's conversation. Frank Vogel, Deborah Connor, and Mark Wolf join her on stage. Connor is acting chief of the money laundering and asset recovery section at the U.S. Department of Justice. She leads the department's kleptocracy initiative. Mark Wolf is a senior U.S. district judge and chairs Integrity Initiatives International, an NGO that fights grand corruption. Their conversation was held in Washington in March. Here's Meryl Chertoff. As we speak, thousands have been arrested in Russia after anti-corruption protests led by Alexei Navalny and the Fund for Combating Corruption. Um, among the allegations that uh, have been made is that Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev secretly amassed an empire of assets, including <coughs> yachts, a vineyard, and luxury real estate uh, via questionable deals. Uh, but Russia is not the only place um, where corruption has come to the fore in recent months. In South Korea, the president has been impeached over corruption and bribery charge. In Brazil, uh, the, uh, the construction mega firm Odebrecht built uh, some of the most crucial infrastructure in the country and is now involved in one of the biggest corruption cases in history. Uh, it has so far paid $2.6 billion alone in fines to U.S. and Swiss authorities and is one of the biggest fish in Operation Car Wash, a probe into the state oil giant Petrobras, a scandal which also uh, resulted um, in the uh, departure and impeachment of uh, Dilma Rousseff of Brazil. Um, and has caught in its web the former president of Peru and government officials in Argentina and Panama. But it's not just political corruption and bribery, um, which is uh, one of the, the, uh, the important things that are going on in this world. Um, kleptocracy uh, enables drug dealing. It enables human trafficking. In a recent Hudson Institute report, 
The authors argue that globalization has created a golden age of money laundering and that contemporary authoritarians are mostly kleptocrats. The flow of illicit funds undermines US foreign policy, <coughs> cripples development, damages Western soft power, and contributes to state collapse. Both Frank and author Sarah Shays have argued that it contributes to the rise of terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And just to give you a sense of how large the scope of the problem is, according to the IMF, up to 5% of world GDP is laundered. Only 1% ever gets any attention. Approximately $300 billion of illicit funds enters the US annually. And as, uh, as to give you a sense of the pool of funds that is subject to this, 21 to $32 trillion were held offshore in 2010. And that's not to say that all money held <coughs> offshore is corrupt, but Transparency International says that nearly all cases of grand corruption involves offshore assets. So I'm going to kick this off by paraphrasing a question that um, Justice Breyer once used to introduce a, a, a chat that he gave to us. Uh, he asked a question, why should the lady in the star market care about all of this? So I'll ask the question of you, Judge Wolf. Why should the lady in the star market care about kleptocracy and grand corruption? Corruption generally is not a victimless crime, and it's a mistake uh, to think it is. And, Grand corruption, the abuse of public office uh, by a nation's leaders, is particularly pernicious. It has devastating consequences. You touched on some of them, the most obvious, but I think not the most important or economic. Uh, ten times more is lost uh, to corruption in developing countries than is provided in foreign aid. Uh, and this is not just an issue in developing countries. The World Bank estimates that 43 percent of Russia's gross domestic product is lost to its corrupt shadow economy. Corruption, particularly grand corruption, breeds terrorists and provides safe havens for them. The constituency for Boko Haram uh, or the Taliban in Afghanistan are essentially uh, people who back those organizations because of their opposition to corruption. You've touched on this. There's an absolute correlation between uh, the countries that are most corrupt at the highest levels on any indices and the countries uh, that have the most egregious violations of human rights. Again, Afghanistan, Syria, you can go down it. But the statistics, I think, really don't capture it. Uh, the cost in human life and human health is enormous. Angola's a very rich uh, country in resources. The president's uh, daughter, Isabel Del Santos, is said to be the richest woman in Africa, worth $3 billion a year. And at the same time, Angola has the highest rate of children who don't live to the age of five of any country in the world. Uh, indignation at grand corruption is a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, it's destabilized many countries, including countries of vital importance to the United States, like Egypt or Ukraine, and uh, in the process uh, are creating grave dangers for international peace and security. 
uh, Maidan uh, protests occur, Yanukovych flees to Russia, Russia goes into Crimea, and all of a sudden the United States' relationship with Russia is profoundly changed. So why does this grand corruption flourish? Why is it endemic in so many countries? It's not because there's a lack of laws. The 178 countries by my last count, there may be a couple more now, uh, are parties to the UN Convention Against Corruption. Uh, it requires all of these countries, and they do, to have laws that make it a crime, including by their highest officials uh, to engage in extortion, bribery, money laundering, obstruction of justice, misappropriation of national resources. But uh, these laws are not enforced. And this is the gaping hole, in my view, in the international system. Uh, the laws exist, but they don't, they're not enforced. And they're not enforced because the leaders of these countries, the Putins, the Erdogans of the world, uh, who will not permit, they, they control the police, they control the prosecutors, they control the courts, which are corrupt in many, many countries, and they won't permit the honest investigation, prosecution, and ultimately punishment of their colleagues, their friends, their families, indeed, themselves. So when the consequences of grand corruption are recognized, and they're comparable, I wouldn't say identical, but they're comparable to the consequences of crimes against humanity, genocide, and war crimes that led to the creation of the International Criminal Court about 15 years ago, when the consequences are recognized and the lack of enforcement of existing laws is recognized, uh, there is, in my view and in the view of colleagues uh, in Integrity Initiatives International, like Justice Richard Goldstone from South Africa and Landon Butler, who's here, uh, a compelling need for a court that would operate on a principle of complementarity, like the International Criminal Court, and be a place where high-level officials in countries that don't have the capacity or will to enforce their laws can be held accountable, because it's only through the enforcement of the criminal law, uh, I believe, that this kind of devastating corruption can be deterred. And so openings uh, for more honest individuals who want to serve their people rather than rob them uh, can be created. In an overly simplified way, that's why your friends at the star market uh, should be concerned and uh, what I think needs to be done uh, more about it. So, Deborah, um, USDOJ uh, has frozen $2.8 billion in 28 cases. It's returned approximately $145 million, at least according to my sources. Yours are probably more updated. Um, and uh, there have been a number of measures enacted recently to try to clamp down on the offshoring of assets in the U.S. Your model for pursuing these cases are quite different than what Judge Wolf is pursuing. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what's been going on at U.S. DOJ and some of the cases that have been pursued? Sure. Um, for one disclaimer, while I'm the acting chief of the money laundering and asset recovery section, I'm nothing I say is the official view of the department, but I'm happy to tell you about our experience um, in my section at the department. The kleptocracy initiative was started in 2010. I'm sure many of you here know that and are familiar with it. Right now I have about a dozen attorneys. We are in the criminal division of the Department of Justice, which means that um, our investigations span both civil and criminal, or both. Um, and we use a tool called civil asset forfeiture as our ability to go after the proceeds of 
what is coming out of these countries and the acts of these kleptocrats. So to the extent that our banking system, our real estate markets, the art market, the um, office buildings that people buy and sell, any of that is used to hide proceeds, launder proceeds. If any of those dollars touch our country, then we can go after those, provided we can show that those are proceeds of crimes. And we have filed civil complaints on a large number of assets, as you say. Uh, these are restrained not just in the United States, which might take the form of restraints against houses or hotels, office buildings. They also include bank accounts here and all over the world. Um, we look also for folks who we consider to be third party money launderers, the folks who assist, um, whether it's here in the United States or abroad, in getting these proceeds out of the countries where they're coming from and into or through the United States. Always our hope is, um, because I'm a criminal prosecutor by trade, that if we see a crime and we find individuals that we can charge, we will. Um, there are certain limitations to that. If they are, in fact, in office, um, there are immunities related to um, individuals who are officials in office, but many times they will leave, they'll lose their position, they will have relatives who are not in office or individuals who help them, and we are free to return criminal indictments against all of those individuals, whether they are here in the United States or abroad, and hope that they either travel or come into the country in ways where we can prosecute them. And an example of that was Lazarenko, um, Pavel Lazarenko, the former um, Prime Minister of Ukraine, who actually served um, 14 years here in the United States on a prosecution by my colleagues out in California. So it's not that it has never happened, it has, and we continue to do that good work now. We've been around about five years. A lot of these lawsuits are civil, and so they take a lot of time. Um, the complaints are quite detailed, and what I think is really terrific about civil asset forfeiture is you read these detailed complaints and we can educate the public here in the United States and abroad about how this happens, how this theft is accomplished and where these monies go. And all you have to do is go to our webpage to read some of the civil forfeiture complaints that have recently been filed. And it is educating, I think, folks everywhere about how we do our work at the department to kind of stop the proceeds and at least restrict the ability of these assets to be used to further crime and theft abroad. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On today's show, Combating Kleptocracy, a conversation led by Meryl Chertoff. She directs the Aspen Institute's Justice and Society program. Her guests are journalist and author Frank Vogel, District Court Judge Mark Wolf, and Deborah Connor with the U.S. Justice Department. Now, back to the conversation. Here's Chertoff. So there's no question about the kleptocrats and prosecuting the kleptocrats or pursuing them. But, uh, Frank, you were talking about the enablers. Uh, and um, who are the enablers? Where are they? And why are they so hard to touch? 
Should I mention some people in the room? Or? <laughs> we can talk, I'll talk about the enablers. The enablers, the, the bankers, and the accountants, and the lawyers, and the consultants, and all the people on the payroll of these kleptocrats who help them to launder their cash, uh, buy their expensive paintings anonymously from Sotheby's and Christie's and elsewhere. Um, but I want to make uh, a point about the enablers that's somewhat different in a different context. Um, we never throw them in jail. Sometimes they get a slap on the wrist. But the truth of the matter is that we're not taking this issue seriously. The scale of connectivity between kleptocracies and organized crime around the world is increasing. Uh, why are we meeting today and why is it so important? Because of four reasons. And I'll come back to why I say we're not taking this problem seriously and why the enablers just enable and make, get rich off the proceeds. One, democracy is under greater threat than at any time since uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union. If you work in civil society, as my colleagues do in many countries around the world for Transparency International, you face more intimidation. There is more journalists being locked up. There are more actions against anybody who criticizes governments, which allows the leaders of those governments to steal with impunity. And that is happening on a greater degree. And therefore, there's a connection between preserving democracy and dealing with this problem of grand corruption. And it's more urgent today, I would argue, than at any time since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Two, there is an enormous connectivity between human insecurity and corruption. Christoph had a piece in the New York Times just a few days ago that 20 million people may starve this year. And you ask why? And it's not because we don't have enough food in the world. It's because so many gov leaders of governments are stealing public funds, putting them uh, into things that help themselves and their families and their cronies. But the result is that food security has gone absolutely into a state of desperation for so many. My daughter was recently working on a refugee program to help North African and Syrian refugees on the Isle of Lesbos. Uh, why are these people coming from, uh, so, uh, from parts of Africa all the way at huge risk to try to get to Europe? It's because they're starving and their governments are stealing. Third point, we are at a tremendous crisis on strategic security. There is a connection again with corruption. Just read the reports from the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan. I was at a dinner last night in New York where the son of a very dear friend, aged 24, is about to uh, go to Afghanistan uh, in the US Army. And you ask, what is going to happen there? What is going on there? We are in Afghanistan for the 14th year. It is the most corrupt country in the world, well, alongside Sudan and Somalia. Uh, we have lost over $100 billion of reconstruction aid in that country. Where has that money gone? Just take a look at Dubai. Just take a look at Mayfair in London. Just take a look at uh, uh, some of the most expensive apartment buildings uh, in New York City. That's where the money is parked. And people, including American soldiers, are dying. So there's a 
strategic security linkage to corruption. And these are all coming together. And that's why we at Transparency International and many, many others have said, we have to have a very serious no impunity campaign. We've got to just stop and say, this is now crisis mode. This isn't the question of just fiddling a little bit more, changing a few more laws, changing a few regulations. We have to attack this everywhere. We have to increase investigations on a major scale. The Justice Department, the FBI do great jobs, but they are totally under-resourced given the challenge. Uh, two, uh, we have to work with the existing authorities. Last week, some colleagues of mine had a meeting in The Hague uh, with people at the International Criminal Court to try to see that they could get corruption as accepted as an aggravating uh, factor in crimes against humanity. And they got a good reception. There are many things that we can do along those lines. We can do a lot, lot more in just exposing the corruption. But for that, we have to defend the journalists who are being imprisoned in, for example, Turkey, just to name one of many countries. But the situation there has now become absolutely desperate. Final point, we have to lock up the enablers. When you read these cases, whether it's the one MDB case involving Malaysia, where Goldman Sachs played such a key role, uh, what has happened? The partner involved there retired from the firm, probably with a huge golden handshake. There is a minor prosecution taking place against them in Singapore. That's it. And half of Goldman Sachs is now working in the Trump administration. Um, I don't believe this administration is going to take the problem seriously. I don't believe the British government is going to take it seriously. They have cut tremendously aid to humanitarian organizations and civil society organizations. And I believe both of them, the US administration and the British administration, are both highly influenced by precisely the people we call the enablers, who are so influential in pursuing special interests that protect the kleptocrats. Thank you. So that's a, that's a pretty dark view about the prospects going forward. And uh, I, I wanted to ask our two other panelists about whether your view is, if, if any relief is forthcoming from the Hill, where the alliances may be, where you may find some sympathetic ears. Um, one of the things that I find so interesting about this is this is not a right-left issue. It's a good government issue, and therefore it might be something where we might be able to get a little bit of cross-aisle cooperation. So, Deborah, you want to take a shot at that? So it's not my practice to predict uh, how things are going to work on the Hill. Um, our practice is to prosecute. So what I will tell you uh, we are taking this very seriously, and we have increased resources. Obviously, we would welcome the opportunity. Um, it does take a lot of prosecutors to do these cases, an intense amount of resources. We have to chase evidence all over the globe. Um, but it is happening. Um, I think the recent lawsuits we have filed says that it's happening. And to the extent that you're seeing faces and names of journalists or individuals who are affected by this, who are being jailed, what it is telling you is that um, people are speaking out, information is coming out, um, there is cooperation overseas, even if you don't see it, um, it is happening because you see this activity to squelch that um, happening all over the world. So we are doing that and I think with every action that we're able to file or the progress that we make on the funds we've restrained, even in going into court as many times as we do to litigate with very sophisticated 
Defense Council about the funds that we have. It does require a lot of resources. Obviously, I'm always welcoming um, the ability to have more prosecutors do this work. But um, a lot of hours are being spent um, in my shop by attorneys, not just eight-hour days, but long days and weekends every day um, to figure out where the money is coming from and where it is going. And there is a focus. We call them on the third-party money launderers. Um, there is a focus on looking at individuals um, and, and making sure that they're not complicit or knowledgeable in what's going on. That is happening. It does take a lot of work. Forensic accountants, it's very sophisticated. We need folks who understand and speak finance through the FBI, HSI, or other law enforcement partners. But it is happening. So um, we haven't spoken. I just want to get to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Our, our new president has expressed a, a, a lack of sympathy for the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And I won't put Deborah on the spot, uh, but maybe I, I can put Mark on the spot to talk about how, how effective it has been and, and um, why other tools may be necessary. This is basically where I came in as a special assistant to Edward Levy uh, in the aftermath of Watergate and the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act was enacted because of uh, abuses uh, in that uh, era. I think we can be very proud of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, uh, but it's important to realize its fundamental limitations. Under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, uh, private uh, organizations that pay, that or American companies or lists on the American Stock Exchange can be criminally prosecuted. Public officials can't be. So when uh, Daimler and Siemens plead guilty to FCPA violations in uh, Brooklyn in a nice package of who they paid in Russia is sent to Prime Minister at that time, uh, President Medvedev, and Navalny uh, complains that nothing's being done. He says that something will be done. Nobody's been, pro no public officials are prosecuted. We don't have any tool to go to the demand side of this corruption equation. Um, and I did a program similar to this at the Council for Foreign Relations last month. I think the second question I got was, I think there's zero chance in this administration uh, that it'll support your proposed international anti-corruption court. Do you agree? I do agree. Uh, two months after I wrote my Brookings and Washington Post pieces in July 2014, the Heritage Foundation came out with a white paper uh, criticizing them and saying, we don't disagree with Judge Wolf's uh, description of the devastating consequences of grand corruption, but essentially national sovereignty trumps all. But this is sort of a double-edged uh, point because it's not surprising in Washington we have an American-centered perspective, uh, but there's enormous uh, concern, active concern, uh, about grand corruption around the world. Uh, there are many countries uh, that uh, will perhaps be more likely uh, to support something if the United States is not taking a leading role. I've been educated to understand. We have three former assistant secretaries of state for inter-American affairs here uh, who can explain much better than me, and I met them through these talks, uh, about the tremendous concern in Latin America, tremendous concern in Africa, and the potential that uh, if there's a vacuum of leadership that the United States has traditionally provided, 
it will be filled uh, by countries small as well as large from around the world. That's certainly my hope. Can I just add, sure. just add something? Um, after the very negative introduction, okay. Uh, and I do think you're trying very hard at the Justice Department. I just think I just wish you had much more resources. Um, the good news on FCPA, Mark's absolutely right. Everything you said. The Odebrecht case, recently, um, which came about because of very intense cooperation between the Brazilian authorities, the U.S. authorities, the Swiss authorities, and others exposed a network uh, of this very, very large Latin American headquartered construction company of an organized bribe-paying scheme in at least 12 countries involving 12 governments. Several of the people who are involved in, allegedly, in taking bribes from Odebrecht are now out of office, former presidents. The current governments in some of these countries, Peru, Colombia, for example, are now, as a result of this initial uh, uh, action by the US Justice Department, now pursuing these cases. And they are therefore trying to bring those government officials to justice. Um, this is, I think, the first time we've seen it on that scale. Nothing like that happened after the Siemens case. Nothing like that happened after the Alstom case, which were two other major corporate, international, organized bribe-paying schemes by major companies <coughs> in many countries, which did not lead to government officials being prosecuted. But in this case, I think there's a breakthrough. And it partly attests to, to what Judge Wolf was saying about s people in some other countries are now taking this issue much more seriously. And I think that's certainly true. But that's coming because of public demand. You're listening to a discussion about government corruption held at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. If you like today's show, check out The Russian Bear on the Prowl. The episode about the U.S.-Russia relationship features experts from the Aspen Security Forum. They talk about Syria and Russian cyber power and the U.S. election. Find it by searching Aspen Ideas to Go on iTunes. Now, back to today's show. Here's Meryl Chertoff. So, so I, I do. That kind of gets us into the, the one of the critiques of this, which is that um, sometimes prosecutions like this will be used by a successor regime in their predecessor for political reasons. And and what are the optics of that? What are the problems politically in those countries? And and is is Wolf's idea maybe a good answer to that? So. I, I could certainly respond to that. We've had this, yeah. uh, the, this discussion a bit. What Frank's describing is 12 Latin South American countries have now agreed to cooperate. They're essentially attorneys general in the investigation of Odebrecht, which spills over into their countries. Hopefully, they'll develop evidence that could be used in a criminal prosecution. But there are two issues. One issue is they're going to have to prosecute those cases in national courts, <coughs> which generally are thoroughly corrupt. Uh, that's one problem, and it's an argument for the International Anti-Corruption Court. Merrill, I think you've put your finger on something uh, 
that's really sensitive. In countries where corruption is endemic, where basically anybody who comes to power, and they go back and forth in some of these countries, uh, could be the subject of a, a legitimate uh, public corruption prosecution, the targets are selected for partisan reasons. Uh, I was working in Romania shortly after this happened. They were very proud. The former prime minister was prosecuted and convicted. Well, it disables him from uh, being an opposition figure. Uh, again, if there were some neutral place, uh, like an international uh, anti-corruption court, with international prosecutors, I think they would be subject less to that kind of political pressure and priorities would be set based on what are the most egregious cases and not who will politically profit from a particular prosecution. So one thing I will say is there is a tool for the demand side of the FCPA and we like to think it's what we do in the kleptocracy initiative. So what we are capturing um, we believe are the bribe proceeds or the theft proceeds from that country. Again, with some of the limitations that we may have on ultimate criminal prosecutions, we do think that our kleptocracy initiative is capturing the demand side of that equation, at least in terms of the civil forfeiture work that we're doing. The, if, if I could res respond to that, in, endorse, I'm a judge, but whatever it is, it, I think that people should be watching closely, like my former law clerk, Austin Evers, the new uh, uh, CEO of American Oversight, uh, to see whether there are adequate resources for the kleptocracy program, for the FCPA, and others. Because these are subtle but significant ways that American leadership could be injured. Having said that, um, there, there are limitations to civil asset forfeiture, and part of it is it takes a long time. But when I first testified about the International Anti-Corruption Court to Atlanta's Human Rights Commission in 2014, I was accompanied by the representative of Human Rights Watch, which was the first organization, Transparency International was the second, to endorse the International Anti-Corruption Court. And uh, the witness, Arvind Ganesian, uh, testified about the Teddy Obiang case, of which uh, Deborah and her colleagues can properly be very proud, but he also pointed out the limitations. Uh, so Obiang's the son of the president of Equatorial Guinea and the vice president, I think, at the time. And they, uh, the Justice Department found that $100 million uh, of evidently uh, stolen money had been run through the United States for various things, luxury properties, and for all kinds of Michael Jackson memorabilia, including a crystal-studded glove that was worn in something called the Bad Concert Tour. Was that the one? I don't, I don't know Michael Jackson. But, the, but uh, you know, Mr. Canadian said, you know, this is commendable, except they settled that case for $30 million, and they didn't get the glove. Somehow he got it. He was supposed to forfeit the glove, but he got it out of the country. Uh, and if you know a, a kleptocrat, uh, a criminal who runs his or her country, thinks, "Gee, I really like to have a mansion in Palm Springs, and I'll put a hundred million dollars through the United States, and if I get caught, I'll lose thirty million dollars, and I'll get to keep the glove." That might be a risk that a rational person would take. 
if there was the credible threat that he was going to go to prison for the course of conduct, uh, perhaps he wouldn't steal the money and there would be uh, education and medical care for people of uh, his or her country. I'm listening to this a little bit and I'm thinking, if this meeting was taking place in Brazil or somewhere else, what would be the reaction? Well, one of the reactions would be, before we go any further, I think, in this discussion, what about here in the U.S.? Because we've got a unique system, which your court, and I think it's a great idea, and we have, as you know, Mark, I've said it's a great idea, your court wouldn't touch this issue. Did anybody read the front page of the New York Times today about Carl Icahn? Uh, has anybody read the New Yorker article about the Mercers? Uh, this is legalized corruption. It's massive. It's American kleptocracy. But we don't call it that. And we don't have laws. We don't even have a discussion about changing the laws. And who would prosecute these guys who are so friendly to people in the White House? I'm not sure. Um, I'm only trying to say we need to get a sense of perspective about our own failings here. The level to which special interests, and thanks to Citizens United, money and politics, have corroded the American political system has meant to a large extent that we have lost a lot of the good ground we had around the world <coughs> in popular perceptions of our leadership. So when Marx says, that it might be good to get other countries to lead on this court, this court thing, it's partly because we're not dealing with our kleptocracy here at home. And I would suggest, uh, perhaps for this discussion, we also look at that. Let me make one other point. Uh, the audio pr uh, prosecution we're talking about, yes, that happened here. But there's another one going on. But this time, not against the son, but against <coughs> the family, the president himself. And it's taking place in France. And the prosecution that's about to come to court resulted from two non-governmental organizations, TI France and another one called Sherpa, who brought an action, demanded investigation of the stolen assets of three West African presidents that were parked in France. The government of France objected. They objected all the way to the Supreme Court of France and they were overruled. And why? So when we talk about enablers, why was the French government so willing to enable all of this? Because of oil. Because the French government has French governmental oil interests that are directly related to those three countries, and it wanted to protect them. We need to get to grips with those kinds of issues as well if we're serious about this. We can't let the governments of the Western democracies off the hook if we're really going to talk about a global anti-corruption court and a system. And if we need to change our domestic U.S. laws accordingly, let's do that. But, 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 but let's have a shout out for the French court, right, for standing up yeah. to the, right, and to the American courts as well. So, and to the French NGOs who right. did this against enormous intimidation by their own government. Yeah. But again, this, this, this comes back uh, to uh, a reason why it would be very valuable to have an international anti-corruption court. Uh, in about 2008, uh, there was a very serious and progressing investigation of bribes that BAE, huge arms uh, uh, manufacturer, paid to Saudi princes. And Tony Blair got a series of calls saying, if you don't 
uh, quash that investigation, you will get no more intelligence uh, from Saudi Arabia. And he did. Uh, it was considered uh, sort of a geopolitical necessary trade-off and huge swaths of uh, attractive areas of England are owned by Saudi princes. I, I think we can be proud to say that the BAE case was prosecuted as an FCPA prosecution in the United States. But th there are pressures on any government, competing considerations uh, that the case Frank uh, highlights, uh, points out, uh, that again, uh, militate in favor of having some neutral, impartial uh, place, uh, not so subject to geopolitical pressures uh, to bring prosecutions when they're clearly merited and won't be brought in the uh, countries in which the corrupt conduct occurred. Well, we have experts in the room, and I wanted to give some of them an opportunity to ask some questions and turn this into a conversation. I should say, uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, the first person called on is not an expert on any of this. Uh, I'm Garrett Mitchell. I write something called the Mitchell Report. I was, I was about to pose a question a few minutes ago in, in my head, which was to come back to Justice Breyer's question about, so why should the lady or the man in the star market care, and say that I'm not sure we've answered that question until uh, uh, Mr. Fogel uh, began to talk about the ways in which, uh, citing the example of Jean Mayer's article in The New Yorker, et cetera, the ways in which this is uh, is not a, a a quantitative issue about percentage of GDP or anything of the sort, but the ways in which it can be demonstrated that it it specifically is corrosive of, if not erosive, of American democracy, and I I I would like to hear. If, if possible, I'd like to hear a bit more about that because it seems to me that's the place where the person in the star market gets it more than uh, on quantitative and economic or, or financial kinds of questions, even though the work that's being done by uh, DOJ is, is, is making all of this uh, possible. Well, I, I, just to start, I, I think it's not just the U U.S. phenomenon I think we're seeing some of the populism and nationalism in France and Germany and Britain and elsewhere has some of these same roots. I think there is a very widespread view that leaders are, and leading institutions and leading establishment institutions in some of the major democracies uh, are perceived, rightly or wrongly, to have served themselves at the expense of everybody else that vast numbers of people in this country see, don't put it in terms of income inequality, but in effect, that's part of the problem, that they see that those who have well, the power are serving themselves, ignoring the real problems that the vast majority of their citizens have. And in a sense, this is corruption, because we look at corruption as the abuse of entrusted power for personal gain. And when, frankly, you look at the fact just to give you one example, the major banks in the Western world have paid $321 billion in fines in the last eight years, according to the Boston Consulting Group. 
Not a single chairman of one of those banks has even been prosecuted personally, let alone gone to prison. 320 billion bucks. You look at that and you say, sure people have a sense that the, the establishment is not serving the public as it should. And when you get that kind of perceptions of abuse, you create the opportunity for populists, for nationalists, and all of the bad things. And when I started this, uh, this afternoon, I said the very first point I made was, I think democracy is under threat. And that's part of the reason that I think it's very much here as well as in many other countries. And I'll give you another, I think, different type of example as to why somebody should care. And I, appreciate your feedback that it should be even more concrete. I, I think that there are Americans whose sons and daughters and neighbors are likely to die in foreign wars uh, because of grand corruption abroad. Take Nigeria for an example, at least until recently. So Nigeria, corruption at the highest levels is endemic, including in the military. Uh, or take uh, Kenya. Uh, same thing. A lot of money was given by the United States to uh, improve security in Kenya. Uh, and it was stolen and defective equipment was bought. That's why Al-Shabaab flourishes, according to John Gathongo, very brave man there. And there may need to be American troops that go to Kenya or Boko Haram, very, regarded as very menacing to the United States. Logically, the best way to combat Boko Haram would be to strengthen the Nigerian military. But at least until recently, if we gave $100 million to Nigeria to improve the military, probably 95% of it would have been stolen and the rest would have been used for, uh, to buy defective equipment. And by default, uh, American uh, military personnel get sucked in <coughs> to deal with these uh, issues. These things don't appear to be corruption issues. Uh, but they're very integrally related to them. And I believe this grand corruption, if you trace, follow the dots, uh, is costing American lives. It's Aspen Ideas to go. Thanks for listening. Meryl Chertoff is leading a discussion about kleptocracy. She's the director of the Aspen Institute's Justice and Society program. She's joined by Frank Vogel, Deborah Connor, and Mark Wolf. Vogel is co-founder of Transparency International. Connor leads the Kleptocracy Initiative at the U.S. Justice Department, and Wolf chairs Integrity Initiatives International. Discover Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes, NPR One, Sirius XM, or your favorite podcast app. Find us, then scroll through our library of shows that cover a broad range of topics. Here's the rest of today's show. Yes, question over here. My son is a U.S. Marine Corps, and he's going to be deployed in a few weeks, so I have a personal stake in this. And, um, but that's not my question. My question is, there's an old saying around Washington is, show me your budget, and I'll tell you your values. And I would like to know, maybe this is for Ms. Connor, 
Um, what kind of values is this administration demonstrating to you regarding kleptocracy? And I would ask the two gentlemen, what do nations around the world give to this effort? If it's as big as you say it is, and I believe it's even bigger. Thank you. So we haven't seen any effects yet to our unit or our section from the budget. We are continuing to staff our kleptocracy unit. We exist. No one has told us that we are out of business. No one has come to me and said, please redeploy all of your prosecutors. So we continue to be a strong and thriving unit within the criminal division and section within the criminal division. Um, nothing has changed about that um, since the first of the year in terms of the boots on the ground work that we're doing from my vantage point within the section. Um, so that's what I can tell you about what I'm seeing um, from inside my section now. Um, we are as busy as we have ever been. We continue to explore new and interesting cases and avenues, whether it's criminally or civilly, we're not slowing down. There's a new deputy assistant attorney general, I think, one of Deborah's ultimate bosses, Trevor McFadden, who uh, reportedly uh, last month uh, was asked essentially this question. And he said uh, FCPA has been and remains an important tool in this country's fight against corruption. It'll be a priority. Uh, he noted that Attorney General Jeff Sessions explicitly noted his commitment to enforcing the FCPA and prosecuting fraud and corruption generally in his uh, confirmation proceedings. I know the Deputy Attorney General designate uh, Rod Rosenstein uh, uh, has echoed that. Uh, so these, at the moment, are rhetorical commitments, and they should be monitored to uh, see if uh, the rhetoric and the reality match. Uh, but I think the statements, at least, provide a benchmark uh, for holding the new administration uh, accountable uh, to these verbal Commitment. This administration says a lot of things. Uh -huh. I, th I think well, there's two, if I may give two answers to your question. First, we provide far, far too little here at home in terms of resources for enforcement of all of these things. So all the people who are doing it at FBI, at Justice Department, are working phenomenally hard. I think they're enormously passionate and dedicated. And they're doing a lot of good things. But it really is a very small amount compared to the scale of the problem. Uh, the um, good news, I think, in part on this, and I've turned to a, a friend from the Fact Coalition here because he's on the Hill all the time and knows this very well, is that the concern about terrorist financing, which I think this administration may take seriously, and which quite a few people on the Hill who would be all in favor of financial uh, sector deregulation may say, okay, because of the risk of terrorist financing cross-border, we need to step up on money law, anti-money laundering. We need to step up on a lot of these kinds of provisions that can somehow investigate and reduce ter terrorist financial flows. Because of that, I believe, we have a chance, perhaps, but please correct me if I'm wrong, we have a chance, perhaps, of getting better legislation through Congress under this administration. 
and maybe even more enforcement. In other words, it's not really because of the corruption, but nevertheless, the, the, so the final point is most of the governments of the world, 40-odd governments of the world who have signed the OECD Anti-Bribery anti Convention, which is the parallel to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, have not put in place sufficient resources to enforce it. But there are some good guys in many of those governments and their justice departments who've said, okay, if we haven't got the resources to do it ourselves, we'll cooperate more with the US Department of Justice. And so there has been far more cooperation in recent years, even the Swiss after the FIFA scandal. Far more cooperation with the result that behind the scenes, as it were, bigger cases can be brought, even if they're brought here. So that's partly the good news, but the answer to your question is fundamentally far too little resources relative to the problem, and I'm totally pessimistic about this administration uh, on the whole anti-corruption front, but that's a, obviously a subject for another day, perhaps. Well, thank you to all of our speakers. Thank you all for being here today, and let's give our speakers a Meryl Chertoff directs the Justice and Society Program at the Aspen Institute. Mark Wolf is a senior U.S. District Judge and chairs Integrity Initiatives International. Deborah Connor is acting chief of the Money Laundering and Asset Recovery Section at the U.S. Justice Department. Frank Vogel co-founded Transparency International. Their conversation was held in March of 2017. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our public programs. Thanks for joining me.